there were many times where I genuinely didn't think I was ever going to be able to run, like, even, like, three miles again. And so there was this kind of period where I was trying to let go of it because I thought I wasn't going to be able to do it. Um, and that was really hard, like, grieving. <laughs> um, and then it started to come back and the possibility of it came back and now it's just like it makes me feel alive I'm better I'm a better partner now that I'm able to run again I'm much better at my job like much more efficient and present and all of that just because I'm able to both like release when I'm running and fill up my tank um, so it's it's been a tough road but it's here to stay I hope and it's it's such a fundamental part of uh of me that it, I really need it to be there in some form um, for the long haul. And that's my only goal, really. Like, yes, I want to compete and it's fun, but like, I won't do anything that puts the ability to run for a long time into jeopardy because I've seen what that's like and my life without running is very tough. <laughs> up everyone that was amy leadham i'm your host mario fraioli and you are listening to the morning shakeout podcast every week on this show i glean insight and inspiration from athletes coaches and others to help show you what's possible through the lens of running i also put out a weekly newsletter conveniently called the morning shakeout which comes out on tuesday mornings and features an eclectic and interesting roundup of things that i've been thinking about reading and listening to lately you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and your first issue will arrive next week. Okay, Amy Leadham. She's my friend. She's one of my athletes. She's a wife and a mom and a badass runner to boot. We recorded this conversation in person a couple weeks ago, and I am super excited to share it with you. Amy told me about her nickname, The Punisher, and how it came to be. We dig into different elements of her personality and how they manifest in various aspects of her life, and we discuss how her relationship to running has evolved over the years, in particular, the past two. Amy also describes the challenges she faced in returning to running after giving birth to her daughter Isla. She shares her best advice for other mothers who might be in a similar situation. She told me how she's developed a renewed sense of gratitude for being able to run, and a lot more. Before we get into this one, I'd like to thank Tracksmith and the members of our Patreon community for making this episode possible. Tracksmith is a brand for committed runners like you and me. They aim to celebrate, support, and contribute to running's distinct culture in everything that they do, from offering considered and original products for training, racing, and recovery, to creating experiences that make running more rewarding, more connected, and more meaningful. The brand's latest initiative, the Tracksmith Foundation, a nonprofit led by Russell Dinkins, is one such example. The goal is simple yet ambitious to give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field. This is a mission that I believe in and I want to support in any way that I can. As such, when you shop at tracksmith.com slash Mario, where you can also check out my favorite apparel picks for getting through the worst of winter, 
And or if you use the code MARIO22 when you check out, you'll get free shipping on your order and 5% of your purchase will go to the Tracksmith Foundation. Tracksmith didn't ask me to do this. I asked them if I could do this as part of our partnership and they agreed to it. I've seen and experienced firsthand how track and field can change people's lives. It introduces you to a wide range of people with different abilities, backgrounds, religions, races, and socioeconomic statuses. It forges lifelong friendships. It teaches discipline and hard work. It can literally and figuratively take you places, and it will make you a better version of yourself off the track as well. I want more people to experience all that this great sport has to offer, and I'm proud to be partnering with a brand that's actively working to help create those opportunities. The Morning Shakeout's Patreon community is where super fans of the podcast and newsletter can support my work directly, interact with me, and also gain access to some exclusive content like the Weekly Rundown, which is a Patreon-only podcast that I co-host with my friend Billy Yang a monthly Coach's Corner discussion where I cover training-related topics with a fellow coach or coaches, and other fun perks such as merchandise and behind-the-scenes sneak peeks that pop up from time to time. You can join for as little as a buck a week at themorningshakeout.com support. A big thank you to all of you who are already members. Your support means so much to me and will help keep The Morning Shakeout sustainable for a long time to come. Okay, please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with The Punisher, a.k.a. Amy Leadham. All right, Amy Leadham, it's nice to sit down and do this with you in person. Welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So I've got to get my personal question out of the way first. And all the time that I've known you, I've coached you, I don't think we have ever talked about this, but where does the nickname The Punisher <laughs> come from? Oh, man. It's your uh, social media handle, your website is amythepunisher.com, and I've never thought to ask you the origins of that oh, nickname. Oh, wow. Okay. How much time do you have? <laughs> no. Um, yeah. Let's see. I can try the short version. Um the origins are, they go back several years um, to before I was even really doing much running, um, but uh, there had been a couple instances with a few different friends, um, mostly on kind of long hikes, long day hikes, um, where I had just kind of taken the group on slightly longer route, like slightly more intense route. And this one time we were with um, our friends Paco and Carmen and in Yosemite. And we did like, the, I don't even know how long it is, 18, 16 mile loop from Tolmy Meadow out to Clouds Rest and back. Hiking. Um, just hiking in a day. Um, and they're super fit as well. Um, and on the way back, I saw on the map that there was this offshoot, like maybe an extra mile to this like really nice looking secluded lake and it was like mid-July it was super hot and I was like guys come on we gotta go to this lake and by this point Paco was just like really tired and like just wanted to be done but I was very gung-ho and he was like god you're the punisher um and then it kind of stuck because there was a another run not that long later with a friend um Jorge Mourinho where he hadn't eaten breakfast and we went on like what should have been a pretty chill run and he just like completely bonked um and then I did it many times to my husband Braden and so it just kind of stuck that like 
be careful going out on an active adventure with me because you're going to get punished. Well, having gone out on a few adventures with you, one that immediately comes to mind is when we went to Mammoth July 4th weekend a few years ago, and I was not nearly as mountain fit as you were at the time, and I certainly got punished. Did they know of this first reference of the Punisher or did the Punisher come up like a few different times? You're like, you know what? It's, it's a thing. Like yeah. I am the Punisher. Yeah. Yeah. No, it kind of like organically emerged. Like, yeah, it, someone said it once, but there had already been a few instances where like similar, you know, things had happened. And then this, our friend Paco said it this one time and then it kind of like kept coming up, you know, after that. And so then it just kind of stuck. Um, and yeah, in the early days of social media, like trying to figure out my identity, I was like, fuck <laughs> it, I'm the Punisher. So <laughs> so Paco gave it a name, but anyone who'd ever gone out on an adventure with you had experienced the, the punishment. And here we are. You're still Amy the Punisher. If you're listening to this and you want to follow her on Instagram, she's at Amy the Punisher. I believe there's underscores between Amy and the Punisher. Yeah. Um, and amythepunisher.com is your website. That's that's super cool. I really like that story. Is there a point of pride in being able to call? I mean, because you call yourself the Punisher now. You chose those social media handles. You chose that website URL. So clearly you're not bothered by this <laughs> distinction that has been bestowed upon you. Yeah. No, there's definitely a point of pride. I think one other... Uh, example of how I went all in on it for a while was for some time it was my Garmin watch face as well mm. like literally the the Punisher skull yeah. <laughs> um, I don't have that anymore it seemed a little aggressive but <laughs> I had it I had it for a bit um, it is a point of pride because I'm I'm very small and I'm petite and blonde and I think people tend to um, both professionally and just out in the world tend to kind of like not expect um, that much from me. And so uh, I guess there's a point of pride of being like, yeah, I might be, you know, small and female and blonde, but I'm still able to punish. So <laughs> what does that nickname say about your personality? I mean, it was bestowed upon you by others, but when you think about it, how do you think of yourself? That's a good question. Um, I, I think I'm pretty intense. Um, but I also uh, am enthusiastic, I think, and, I, and I, I think punishing comes from a good place. Like, I just want everybody to be having as good of a time as I am and, like, get that feeling of accomplishment of, like, doing something hard and physical. Um, and so, because, I mean, I punish myself, too. So it's not just, like, I do this to other people it, and I'm using punish in the way of, like, where it comes from in my name, um, my nickname. Um, yeah, it comes from just kind of wanting to push boundaries a little bit and always see the next level of what's possible or see what's over that next hill. And like when you're out on a physical adventure, that's how you kind of get to that point of being a little bit tired, but also maybe that's how you get to see that next really cool thing or like break through a physical barrier you didn't know you had. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of a lot of, of what it means for me. I love that. I really appreciate how you've taken this word that has a negative connotation and really put a positive spin on it. And I think, I hope that people listening to this can take that away for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't really thought of that before, but it, I mean, 
What do you think of the origin? I think the origin story is kind of important because if you just hear the Punisher, you're like, huh. I mean, and yeah, it is intense, but like it comes from a good place and like just wanting to adventure and test physical limits and kind of see beautiful stuff, really. So let me, let me ask you this. Like in all of your travels, like races that you've gone to, people that you've come across, those who haven't met you but are aware of you because they followed you on Instagram and they see Amy the Punisher. Uh, and this reference keeps coming up, you know, over and over again. And you do have a very intense side to your personality. Has it ever been, like, turn off isn't the right word, but has it ever been, like, a detriment in meeting someone where they met you and they're expecting one thing, and then once they got to know you, they're like, okay, she's got this intense side to her, but she's a really nice person <laughs> and has a, a positive side to her, which is really infectious, too. I'm sure that's probably happened. I'm trying to think of specific examples. Um I, I have like a faint memory of someone saying something like that, like that I was became friends with that they were like, I was really intimidated by you at first, but yeah, I guess that's what I was yeah. So I think that has probably happened a couple times. I can't actually remember the exact circumstances. Um, sidebar, one of the fun things about for me anyway, about pregnancy is that I feel like chunks of my brain are missing. And so <laughs> it's hard to remember. Like sometimes I have trouble remembering things. So um, mom brain is real. Mom brain is very real. But yeah, I think I definitely have had people um, say that they were really intimidated by me at first. And then once they got to know me, they were like, oh, you're actually just a big teddy bear. Um, that has definitely been a common theme um, uh, among men, male and female friends, I would say. Last bit on this. So on your website, in your bio, this is what I wrote down. Uh -oh. I was telling you about earlier. <laughs> you wrote that. You took a personality test yeah. when you, I don't know if you were applying for your current job, but somewhere in your professional pursuits, you took a personality test. And it said that you were intuitive, a leader, a learner, determined, and hardworking, but also arrogant, judgmental, uh, and overly analytical. Take me through this <laughs> assessment of your personality and help me understand what levels of truth it actually holds. Yeah, so that was that was like a long time ago. Actually, that was at my previous job. Um, but I found it really interesting. And it might have been the Myers-Briggs one. Um, I think I'm the INTJ. Um, and the reason I included there is because I thought it was, uh, there's quite a lot of accuracy in it. And I thought it was valuable because it shows kind of the positives and the negatives and how sometimes they can work together um, for better and for worse. Um, so I would say that I think I'm, I'm not necessarily arrogant, but... Um, I wouldn't call you arrogant. No, but I think that especially when I took the test and maybe when I was younger, um, there was a bit of like, I can do this better than other people. It was like, con maybe it's just more confidence mm -hmm. um, in like wanting to be successful or do something well or like have confidence in my own professional or running skills. Um, so I don't think it goes to the level of arrogance, but I think I, and I think a lot of younger people have that. Like I see that in running and in at work now with people who were are the age that I was when I took the test um, of kind of coming in and being like, lear having learned something cool at school and being like, I can transform the industry. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the world needs that <laughs> kind of optimism almost. Um, 
but uh, I already forget what most of the other words were, but I think I'm, I think determined was one of them. Yep. I'm definitely very stubborn. Um, yep. <laughs> I think the past uh, two years or 18 months have definitely solidified that even more for me. <laughs> um, and passionate, I think maybe was that one of them or something like that. I don't remember. I don't think passionate was on there, but knowing you as I do, I would say that's an accurate adjective. I get get really riled up about stuff. (laughs) No. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah. Can you remind me what were some of the other ones on there? Intuitive, leader, learner, determined, hardworking, uh, all of which I can confirm. uh, Arrogant, as we said, judgmental and overly analytical. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, I think I'm a natural leader in many cases. Like I don't like to just sit back and let things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that I necessarily think I can always do something better than other people. It's just usually other people take longer to figure out what to do. And I'm kind of like, I want to just, let's just go do it. You have a very make it happen type of person. Yeah. 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 and then uh, I, I love learning. Like my the reason I love my job um, outside of running is because it, I have to learn continuously to to stay kind of relevant in the industry that I'm in, and it's really interesting to me. Um, I'm definitely overly analytical, um, though. I would say having a kid has forced me to let go of some of that just to like not go completely insane. <laughs> but I definitely still have a tendency to over overanalyze stuff for sure. Where does your confidence come from? You mentioned how you're not so much arrogant maybe as you are confident. And I would agree with that. I mean, in all the time that I've known you, I've appreciated the confidence that you carry around in all of the things that you do. Certainly in your running and the way that you pursue that part of your life, but also in your job, just the relationships that you keep in the way that you move through the world? I've thought about this a bit because I I think I, until somewhat recently, took my confidence for granted a bit, um, mm. not really realizing that, especially women um, and especially of like, not my generation, I'm not saying I'm old, but like <laughs> women in their late 30s and 40s who grew up when I did, like there's definitely a, a commonality of um, not being super confident. Um, I think a big part of it is that I grew up with a mom who is a complete badass scientist. Um, so I grew up with this role model of someone who was doing amazing work and really smart and um, you know, putting her career, like she was the one out um, in the world having a really amazing career. Um, and I think that's that kind of just... You know, I grew up seeing that, like, there's no reason why a woman can't do any of that stuff. Um, And so it never occurred to me that, like, to not be confident that I could go do that. Um, And I think actually, I've thought about this a bunch. I think my dad really helped um, build my confidence a lot, too, because he was my soccer coach. So I grew up playing soccer. um, But he also just kind of would tell me, like, there's, you can do anything that you, and it sounds so cheesy, but like you can do whatever you want. Like you're smart and you know, like you just have to work hard and he never kind of really said it as straightforward and clear as that because my parents are English and everything is like three grades um, (laughs) (laughs) underground. But um, that was, that's what it amounted to. And it was like a pretty continual message. Um, And he did a lot to undermine that message, but I think fundamentally like, 
I took that to heart. Yeah, and at a young age, when you're really impressionable, he's planting those seeds. And by the sounds of it, and knowing you as I do, those have only grown throughout the course of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I think they... I, it's funny, like, I think there's a lot that happened in my childhood to also kind of uh, make me question confidence, but ultimately I, you know, overcame that, and I think I generally have a decent amount of confidence. I mean, I get super nervous whenever I have to speak in public in front of, in meetings and stuff, like, it's not like I'm out here, like, you know, totally immune to um, all of the normal feelings, but um, I think when it comes down to it, I trust myself um, and I think that goes to the in- intuitive portion of that yeah. um, in that test is like, I I think I do have strong intuition and I have this uh, really good, really lucky to trust myself. Yeah. I think those two things are related intuition and confidence. I mean, I don't think you can have good intuition without having confidence. And I don't think you can present yourself as a confident person without having a strong intuition either. So I think those two things like feed back and forth off of each other. While we're on the topic, what areas of your life do you not feel super confident? You mentioned if you're (laughs) presenting, I mean, you get nervous. We all do when we're in front of people, but then the thing starts much like a race and you're like, okay, I just, I know what to do at this point. But are there any areas of your life either now or as you've grown up where you're like, yeah, I just don't feel like, you know, quite as confident when I'm doing that as I do other things. Yeah, I mean, uh, being a mom for sure has, uh, especially early days, was very, like, shaking to the core of of confidence. Um, And should be noted, you're a first-time mom. Yes, first-time mom, yeah. Um, And I think actually I, especially after... Uh, the kind of seclusion of <laughs> the past two years. Um, I've always struggled with talking to people I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you, once I you know am in like a race or you know I'm around a couple people that I know, like I can be somewhat outgoing. But if I struggle really hard when I have to go to conferences and like try to make small talk, even even though we're in the same industry or anything like that, like I really struggle with. Um, coming up with a conversation out of out of nothing with strangers. <laughs> yeah, that I mean that doesn't surprise me too much. I think we're similar in this way in that we're both a bit introverted and we feel much more comfortable in a situation like this where we're talking one on one or we're in a very small group. But then you're in this like big you know group environment, whether you have to talk to people or you know you're even around like a bunch of other runners sometimes, even though they're like you know our you know our people, it can feel like a bit overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, totally. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about running and your relationship to it. I'm not sure right now exactly when I'm going to publish this podcast, but we're having the conversation at the end of January 2022. (laughs) I know where you're at right now, so I'm going to just play dumb for a little while, but catch my listeners up on just where you're at right now and what your relationship to running looks like at this time? Um, Where I'm at is that I have run a few weeks in a row here in the high 20s of mileage per week, and I'm very, very excited about it. (laughs) Um, I'm in a good place. I'm really excited for the future, Um, but I have 
I've, I'm kind of coming out of a, a really difficult, very long patch. Um, so my relationship with running is that I absolutely love it. I'm so excited that it's back in my life. Um, I was telling my husband I had my long run yesterday. It was supposed to be between nine and 10 miles and it was a beautiful day, but the trails were absolutely awful. Like every single step was trying not to break my ankle. Yeah, And it's quite... Um, up and down terrain and like very mentally and physically exhausting. Um, and I think normally I would have just been really frustrated and angry that like my long run was ruined by these trails. And there was definitely a little bit of that, but I was just so freaking excited that I'm at the place where I can just go out and run. I mean, only end up running like eight and a half, but um, nine to 10 miles and like that's that seemed I actually genuinely thought that was never going to happen again for quite a long time so I'm where I am is super excited and very much in love with running do you have more gratitude for it now than you had we'll say prior to your pregnancy but at any other point in your life a hundred percent definitely um I've been through a few I know like longer injuries um before this recent kind of bout, <laughs> which we can talk about later. Um, and I always came back, you know, more grateful, but nothing compares to this because again, I think I, I struggled to even like sit without pretty severe pain for quite a long time. And I genuinely had many moments where I didn't think I was ever going to run again. So being where I am, I'm so grateful for every step, even if it's on a treadmill, even if it's in the dark, like it sounds so cliche and corny, but um, it's it's genuinely true. And like, yes, I love the runs out where like you're flowing and it's sunny and it's beautiful, but I still feel pretty close to elation when I'm just like running on a treadmill. Let's rewind to maybe three years prior to your pregnancy, before this like onslaught of physical trauma that you've experienced, which, you know, really af affected your ability to run and certainly how you felt about it. What excited you about running two to three years ago when you were pretty healthy, you weren't a mom yet, and it was next to your husband and your job and your friends and family, like a very big focus in your life. I mean, you were representing the U.S. internationally at some races. You were doing well at international races like CCC um, and even here domestically like North Face 50. Like the competitive aspect of it was a, a big part of your relationship too. And I'd like to understand like what was exciting you about running at that point? Yeah. Um, all of the things you mentioned, you know, I think – Representing my country was really cool, and that was very exciting. Um, just like, I think fundamentally, I've always come from a place of curiosity about my own abilities. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of came to trail running somewhat naturally, like not, not going into being like, oh, I can dominate everybody. Like I volunteered at a race, and it seemed like a really cool community, and I started winning local races, and I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, And then I started learning about races like CCC and Zagama and um, 
uh, like this whole new world opened up to you. Yeah, and just like seeing the experience of not only the kind of variety in landscapes, but um, the way different cultures embrace trail running and celebrate it. And um, it was it was just really cool. It was really just a big kind of exploration adventure of like two folds. I think of seeing what I was capable of, um, and then also getting to experience, you know, all of these amazing places with other people. I mean, that's kind of was really cool part of it. Like, as I was saying earlier, I'm not like an extrovert, but I actually really love sharing things with people. Um, And so, you know, between like, it's a small community, right? And so even internationally, um, you'd be running a race and like, someone catches up to you and you get to have a chat with them and um or even like at the world championship running it as a team event like all of that stuff I think fed it's like two sides of the of what was so exciting for me was like my physical abilities and then just like getting to see and experience all this really cool stuff okay let's put a pin in that right there because I want to come back to it but before we do I think we need to go back to your beginnings in (laughs) the sport and again I'm just going to play dumb because I I know of your beginnings in the sport, but when did running as a formal, we'll call it practice, come into your life? Um, College as a, well, yeah, I guess as a formal practice, I walked on to the track team at Northeastern University in Boston. Um, My, no, freshman year. Sophomore year. I don't even remember what year. I <laughs> can tell how, how serious of a track athlete I was. Um, did you run track and cross country in high school? I did not. So Okay. I, I know you played yeah, soccer. I grew up playing soccer, um, and the track and cross country coach tried to recruit all the soccer players, and actually I was the position I was in was outside, like a winger, call it, defensive winger, but I also like really liked being involved in the attack. So I ran so much mm-hmm. just in soccer and Non-stop um, fartlek session. Yeah, pretty much. And so the cross-country coach tried to recruit me, but this is going to sound terrible. He just uh, he just turned me off. Like there was just something that like didn't. I think because he was he was like really excited about cross-country and and track, and he really wanted athletes, and it was just like too insistent. And I just was like, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, but I also played soccer three seasons, and so. Um, it just didn't really work for me. So all of that is to say no. And then when I got to college, um, I didn't play soccer. um, And I started running a bunch. And some friends, I had some friends on the track team and they were like, okay, you're running like eight miles just for fun. Like you (laughs) should come join the track team. Um, And I did. And I started, I had no idea what event that made sense for me because I'd never run track. Um, and I picked the 800 because it seemed like it would be, you know, I don't, I don't want to use the word easy, but like the, the, the least painful option, which is of course very wrong. <laughs> in retrospect, that's, that's hilarious. Cause that might be the hardest event yeah. in track. I don't know that I knew that. And it just reminds me of when I got into the sport in high school, I played basketball and I started running to keep in shape for basketball. And when I joined the track team for the first spring, you know, we all had to go out and run these one mile loops, no matter what event you did. And I hung with the top distance guy for like four miles. I actually think I hung for like three and then I had to start walking um, because I just wasn't, I wasn't in shape, but I told the coach, 
when he asked me what events I wanted to run. I was like, 300 hurdles up to the 800. Uh, I'm not running anything longer than an 800 for the same reason. Because I was like, uh, I mean, it's just too hard after that. Yeah. Um, and he's like, no, you're going to run the two mile. I'm like, I don't want to run the two mile. But it's just, anyway, that's a total, that's a total tangent. Um, well, and I'll, the- I'll turn it back to you now. But you wanted to run the 800 at Northeastern. Yeah. Well, it's the, it's the misconception that longer is harder. I mean, and it is in some ways, but it's also not in other ways. So, um, yeah, so I ran the 800. I wasn't particularly good. It's not surprising. I think my fastest was like maybe a 230. Um, And uh, we were out running along the Charles in the dark. Um, I don't know, maybe spring as a team, mid-distance team. And um, our captain was like, I think you should run the 5K. Like, because I was just like, this was their long run, and for me, I was just like, this, this feels fine. Like, yeah, it came naturally to you. Um, and so then I transitioned to um, the 5K and cross-country, and I loved cross-country. Um, it was super painful, but it was so much fun. And, of course, I did, like, a couple 1500s and whatever in there as part of just, like, the season's progression. Um, but yeah, and I ended up not doing that many seasons just because, um, I was also an architecture student, which is like crazy full on, like Mm -hmm. the culture is 24 seven. Um, and I also worked, um, almost half time. And so it just became too much. I got really sick one year, um, and kind of never went back, unfortunately. So I don't even know how many seasons I did, but it wasn't like a full college career by any means. Back to high school, even before that junior high when you were growing up playing competitive soccer i mean yes during the games it's a big fartlek session you're sprinting back and forth across the field but even a lot of the conditioning involved during preseason practices involves a lot of of running and not all sprint work there's definitely a endurance component to it at the time i mean before you ever had any thoughts of just going to run for fun or joining a college team did you enjoy that aspect of the training for soccer? Do you remember like those parts of practice being more enjoyable for you or coming easier to you than some of the other players or that you noticed you were a better runner or could run longer than some? I'd love to just understand that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I don't think I necessarily like remember thinking, oh, this is awesome. But I also, I think it did come a little more easily to me, like, um, the more, the endurance side of it. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like, I I had no notions of just running for fun really when I was playing soccer. Um, I, I just loved playing soccer and I loved the team aspect. And, um, I do remember like when we got a bit more, when I got older in high school and kind of more serious, like the running component was, was just part of it. Right. And like, you just did it. Um, for, uh, yeah, for the conditioning, but I don't remember like super loving it. I didn't hate it, and it w- it never felt like you know a big deal to me. When you were playing soccer, did you have a competitive personality? Oh yeah, big time. Not surprised um, by that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> huge. Uh, yeah, and um, we used to do the. I think it was the Michael Jordan. What time is it? Game time. Huh? Yeah. that was our cheer, and I was the 
person that yelled, what time is it? Because I was also the loudest. So like, I have this weird side where I am very loud. And on the soccer field, I was, um, I was captain of our club team um, for a bit. And yeah, just like, I think it's where that leadership and like communicating and just being loud um, definitely came out in full force on the soccer pitch. I think we need to bring that chant back as part of your <laughs> pre-race ritual. It's like, what time is it? Race time. <gasps> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's all. I remember that as well. I mean, I played basketball and that was our, I mean, that was our thing too. I mean, it was probably it was like, probably everybody. In, yeah. I mean, this is n- <laughs> 1990s. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was probably most like junior high, high school teams, like, you know, pre-race. Absolutely. Chant. That, yeah. That's hilarious. Were you yeah. competitive in other areas of your life, like academically or like playing board games with friends, that sort of thing? Not academically. Um, I didn't really get serious about academics till I went to college. Um, I'm lucky that I, you know, had a baseline and my parents were pretty strict that I didn't completely screw up high school and therefore couldn't get into college because I, if I wasn't, I think it was more that if I wasn't challenged academically, it was really hard for me to see the point. Mm-hmm. And so I actually did worse in the easier classes. Because I like didn't have the um, uh, what, not dedication, but the I don't know what the right word is. Um, motivation. Or- yeah, maybe not motivation, or I didn't understand like why. Yeah. Like that, getting the grade is important, and like I knew that my parents drove that home, but like I couldn't translate it to sure. motivation. But when I went to college, that changed for sure. I, I became pretty competitive with myself academically. Um, board games. I'm sure I was like I don't like losing. Um, I'm a, I'm a little sibling and my brother, um, my big brother, you know, I, I used to lose to him and he used to cheat and like make sure that he won <laughs> like all big brothers. Right. Yeah. And I didn't like that. And so maybe that's where it, uh, <laughs> manifest. I don't know. <laughs> well, I was on, I was on the office side of that. I was the, the big brother. And I, I can say that I would go to the ends of the earth and not let my little siblings beat me in yeah. whatever it was. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I can't fault your big yeah. brother for that. No, it's but, normal. <laughs> but it also like helped you to just kind of develop, you know, some resolve in yourself and then the motivation to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, be like, I'm going to show him or yeah. like, I'm going to, I'm going to surprise him, yeah. catch him off guard, like that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Back to Northeastern, when you left the track team, did you keep running like you were before you joined? I did. Um, I, I, oh gosh, timing is so weird because I swear I joined early, but then I remember like running with the team like later in my academic career. But anyway, once I graduated, um, I stayed in Boston Mm -hmm. for a bit and then um, I decided to go to grad school in London, uh, but that was a bit, it was like a ways out. And so I decided that I had to, I should run the Boston Marathon before I leave Boston. Um, and so that was my first marathon. I, I raced it under charity, which now is like completely insane. Um, back then, I think you had to raise like $2,000, which was still really hard as a like 22 year old with, you know, very poor college friends. <laughs> yeah. Now, now it's like six or eight or something. I know it's yeah. crazy. Um, but so the Boston marathon was my first marathon and my friend had run a marathon. Um, and she ran a three twenty six, I think. And so I was like, okay, well, she had a group playing soccer with her. Like we're similar, like I'll aim for like that time. That seems reasonable. Um, trained through the winter in Boston. Um, not an easy thing to do. Not an easy thing to do. And um, yeah, ran my first marathon 322 at Boston. 
I didn't realize that that was your first marathon. I knew you ran it in college. I thought you may have qualified at Cape Cod or something. I'm just getting it mistaken or something. I didn't realize that you had raised money for charity. That's still an incredible first marathon, no matter how you slice it. Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was fun. I did. I had a lot of the fun newbie mistakes. Like I didn't fuel in training. Like I didn't know that that was a thing. So mm-hmm. I would go out there running. 20 mile, I think maybe 20s was my, was my longest long run, like out on the course in snowstorms with no, no food, no water. Like, I don't understand how I did that. Like in hindsight, I'm just like, what? And then I took one gel, I think, uh, maybe mile 20 or something of the race. Cause I was starting to bonk real hard and my shoes were a bit too small. So I was really sick afterwards. You made all the rookie mistakes. M- I had lost like half my toenails, um, and then I was like, "When can I do another one?" <laughs> How did you train for it? Did you follow a plan that you had found somewhere? Did you hire a coach? Did you do workouts with the charity group that you had signed up for? Help me to understand that. Um, I found something online. Um, it probably was on Let's Run. Like, so this was two thousand and seven. So, mm-hmm. like, this is pre-social media, pre like the internet really even being a usable place (laughs) in some extent. Um, So I think I just found something online. Um, The charity group didn't have, like, I felt like I was beyond the level of the charity group. Um, Just because you had been an athlete. Yeah, and, like, I understood, like, training schedules a bit. And I definitely still did some truck and hill workouts. um, But I think I I did every, pretty much every single run by myself. and just followed this thing and definitely didn't follow it as religiously as, you know, would have because it was winter in Boston. And sometimes at 6 p.m. when it's like, you know, 15 degrees and dark, like the most you could get in is four miles. But, um, yeah, I, I, it was, that was a long time ago. <laughs> when you were a student at Northeastern, did you go out onto the marathon course and watch the race every year? Did it capture your imagination in that way? Um, not as something I would ever do, but yes, we, we went out, um, cause it's a holiday in, in Boston. And so, um, I remember one year I tried to go to the Boston public library before I was even running track and it was closed and I was really annoyed cause I was trying to write a paper for school. It was Marathon Monday. <laughs> yeah, Marathon Monday. Um, and then other days, um, I don't even know. I think maybe went down once, but like you just watch it on TV or like, you know that it's happening. Um, but we, I didn't go down like, and be like, yes, I could do this someday. Um, we used to get questions when we were running, uh, with our team, like, oh, are you ladies training for the are marathon? Are you training for the marathon? Like, yeah. No, we're just running. Like what? <laughs> Why would you run a marathon? I mean, honestly, the, the mentality of, of, I'm probably common for track runners and, cross country is like, why would you ever run a marathon? Like that was my mentality until I actually saw, I was at the finish line of the Burlington marathon in Vermont, um, visiting some friends one year. And I think that was what kind of spurred that imagination. Yeah. It's funny to hear you describe that because having grown up in central Massachusetts, I spent a lot of time in Boston. It is the marathon. I mean, Boston is the marathon. And the average person who didn't grow up running cross country in track or know that that's even a thing, they see anyone out running. And the question they have for you is, well, 
have you run the marathon? Are you training for the marathon? marathon? And it's like no other form of running exists except the marathon, uh, which I've always found hilarious. So, I mean, that what you described is is 100% true. I think it's still true today. I mean, people, Boston's a great running city. And I think there's like probably some percentage of the population that sees all these people running up and down the river all the time. I'm saying, oh, they're all, they all must be training for the marathon. the marathon. Yeah. Why else would you be out there in the middle of the winter, like putting in your miles? Yeah, totally. Um, but it's a, I mean, it's a special, it's a, it's a special event uh, in Boston, like in relation to the marathon is a really special place to be, I think, during the wintertime, even when conditions are terrible because people are out putting in the miles and probably like, you know, at least half of them are training for the marathon. Yeah, totally. Um, All right. Let's fast forward to London. You go there for grad school. You've got the Boston Marathon under your belt. How are you thinking about just your life in general at that point? Oh, man. Um, Running, I would say running was like a very much secondary or third whatever below secondary is, (laughs) priority. Um, Grad school is really all-encompassing, and there's just a culture in London, too. It gets, especially in the the winter, it gets dark early, go to the pub. In the summer, if it's nice out, you go to the park and drink. And I was 23, 24, um, and that's where I met my now husband. And so I was definitely running. Um, I did a few half marathons um, and just, like, trying to run because it, it was just a part of my life that I needed for sanity. Mm-hmm. And it, I didn't even think about it that way. It was just like, I am like, it's just ingrained, right? Like, and so I wasn't necessarily training for stuff, but um, it was there. And then I decided I needed a kick in the pants. And so I signed up for the London Marathon. Um, and Was it hard to get in? No, because I had qualified with my Boston time. Okay. So it must have, I don't like, t- years are, I just, they all blend together. So it must have been within enough, like close enough time to my Boston time that I qualified for age. Okay. Um, and I had dreams of running a 315. Like that was the next kind of mm-hmm. milestone. But this was, this was pre um, smartphone, pre smartwatch. And so I was just running based on time, which, you know, nothing wrong with that. Um, and, or training based on time, I should say. And uh, was obviously running a lot slower than I thought because I d- definitely don't think I covered nearly as much ground on my long runs as I had thought I did because I died at that marathon, like completely died. Um, I ran a 230-something and had to stop and walk uh, several times. and 330-something. That's what I meant, sorry. 330-something, yeah, definitely not 230. 330-something. <laughs> um, and was just like, yeah, completely shredded and destroyed. Um but got it done. Got to run through London. It was cool. <laughs> Did that sour your relationship with running at all to have it go poorly like that? It didn't. Um, something else that happened while I was training, though, was I got um, – I had a pulmonary embolism. So it's a blood I didn't cl- know that. Yeah, blood clot in your lung. Um, and I – thankfully, this is where confidence, I think, played a really major role because – I went to the doctor, and my dad has a history of uh, of pulmonary embolism. And he, like before I left for London, he, he had an incident where they discovered it, and his lungs were like filled with them, and his heart was like twice the normal size. And he survived, and he was fine. But then they checked and determined I had the risk factor, um, yeah. and so 
yeah. But um, so when I went to the doctor with this chest pain um, and I told they were asking all the usual questions. I told them I was tra- training for a marathon and they were like, well, if you're able to train for a marathon, there's no way you have a blood clot. And I was like, mm. and they were like, but if you're here, like, and you want, we can do the test. And I think a lot of people would be like, well, the doctor knows best. Like mm-hmm. I'm gonna, but I, this is where intuition and confidence, I was like, no, let's, let's do that test. And then sure enough, they found it. They found it. And it was just one, but, um, I had to go through a whole protocol of, blood thinners for a year and change, <clears throat> changing my diet. Brayden had to inject me every day for the first six weeks. Like, <laughs> so that happened while I was training. Um, and so getting it done, I think was just felt like a pretty big accomplishment. Um, I didn't run another race for a while after that. I don't even remember. Like, I don't think I raced again until we came back to the States. So how long were you in London? I was there for three and a half years. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, you met, Braden there. Yep. Finished grad school. Yep. I assume he finished the program that he was in. How are the two of you thinking about next steps at that point? Did you know you always wanted to come back to the U.S. or were you pretty open-minded in terms of what your next steps were going to be after grad school? Yeah, we were pretty open-minded. Um, so I'm I'm a citizen. My parents are English. Um, I still did you have an accent when you were there? <laughs> I did a little bit, yeah. Really? A little bit. Okay. It's more like an intonation and just some vocabulary, but... Yeah. Um, My sister's developed one in the 11 years that she's lived there. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, So it was easy for me to stay, but uh, this was around the time that they started cracking down on immigration for everybody, and so it actually became really difficult for Brayden to stay. And this was uh, just after the big recession, and so there weren't a lot of jobs, Mm -hmm. um, and we were so poor, and um, we were just kind of over how hard everything was there all the time. And um, yeah, Braden got like half of a teaching job back here in Santa Cruz and um, had some friends from high school that lived in San Jose who had a spare bedroom. So we had a free place to live and half of a job. So we're like, let's do it. <laughs> and then I found a job in San Francisco and we've been here 11 years, I think. I've heard the proposal story, but did he propose to you before you moved back here to yes. San Jose? Yes. Yeah, okay. he did. Um, yes, he proposed in the horizontal driving rain in the highlands of Scotland. <laughs> Do you want to tell a story? <laughs> um, I mean, that's pretty much the story. Um, he, well, he had, I'm like obsessed with the Northern Lights. I've never seen them, but I like, this is like my, my one goal in life is to see the Northern Lights. And we went up to the Scottish Highlands for New Year's with some friends. And in theory, the Northern Lights are there, but it's Scotland. And so there's a massive layer of cloud (laughs) that blocked them the whole time. Um, And he hadn't really considered that. And I think he got it in his head that he was going to propose on that night. And despite the fact that it was horizontal raining, like, I, I mean, I pity the guys and gals that propose because like it's got to be so nerve wracking. It's like you made the decision, you're doing it, you're going to do it whether or not it's raining. Can't, can um, confirm. It yeah. is very nerve wracking. <laughs> but um, so yeah, he, he proposed on the top of this hill um, with rain just like driving into his face. Um, and I said, yes. So, <laughs> Do you remember where you were when you told me that story for the first time? Were we running? Yeah. Yeah. I think we shared our, was one of the first longer runs we did together. I think we shared our engagement stories, right? We did. And I just have a very visual memory and I'm like, oh, I remember exactly where I was when someone did X, Y, and Z. But when you told me that story, we were climbing 
coastal trail. Okay, I thought so. Yeah, training together yep. for North Face. North Face in 2017, and it was right before we got up to Cardiac, where we yep. would take a water break. But I yep. just, I don't know. I just, I remember you telling me like it happened in the driving rain. It was in Scotland, Northern Lights, and I remember I was like, "Yep, we were on Coastal <laughs> Trail, just about to summit," which is a total aside, but. I know I do remember that that because I think that was the most enjoyable that climb has ever been because (laughs) we were trading like very happy, nice stories. (laughs) It's a long climb. So you better have like a good story to tell as you're as you're going up it. Otherwise, it just seems like it's never ending. Yeah. So you move back here. Neither of you are from California. You grew up in New Jersey. Brayden's from North Dakota. Yep. The two of you moved to California together. Did it just seem like, hey, well, we're young and, you know, we have nothing tying us down. Let's go see how it is. That was pretty much it, yeah. Um, when we were decided to move back to the States, we were super open and we were, I applied to like every major architecture firm um, and he applied to a bunch of schools because he's a professor of architectural history um, or a, a teacher at the college level. Um, and it's kind of amazing to be in that place of life where yeah, like the possibilities are pretty endless and open. Um, Also kind of terrifying because you have no idea where you're going to be in three months. But yeah, um, we moved here and um, settled into Oakland pretty quickly. And, um, you know, I think we really solidified our roots here through something called November Project. Um, My friend Laura McCluskey, now green, um, from college, I ran track with her. She uh, started the first um, group of it out yeah, in, she was in San the Francisco. Out of San Francisco. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So she basically, if no one, if you don't know what it is, um, it was started in Boston by two former classmates of or schoolmates of mine, rowers from Northeastern, um, to just get through working out in November in Boston. So they made a commitment to meet each other like every day, um, and they had a spreadsheet about what they were going to do, and they called it the November Project. And then it just organically grew to like more people working out on Wednesday mornings. Um, and it was like aggressive. There's like, but in a good way. There's lots of fuck yeahs. There's lots of hugging. It was just like. And they're just magnetic guys with lots of energy, and yeah. so it just caught fire. And they created this community. Oh yeah, around free fitness, yeah. which is still going strong today. It's still going strong, and this was kind of early social media days too. Um, what year are we talking? Oh God, Laura's gonna kill me that I don't know. Um, I think. Oh God, maybe two thousand and twelve. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I should know. I'm a bad November Project member. Um, but yeah, so my friend Laura moved out here, and, and she was like, I'm starting this thing. You have to come. And I lived in Oakland, and it we met at Keysar Stadium, and it was not convenient at all, but I, we went. Yeah, that is not convenient. <laughs> I, I went. I dragged Braden a few times, and it turned into this amazing thing, and I met like 80% of my really good friends Um from the Bay Area through that um, and have had people that I don't know put me up for free for the night in other cities just because we got connected through November Project. I mean, it's really amazing. Yeah. What did your relationship to running look like at that time? So this is like 2012. I hadn't 
met you yet. I hadn't even moved here to the Bay Area yet. I got here like 2014. I was introduced to this entire community by SFRC, which is eventually how we got connected. You had mentioned a while ago earlier in this conversation how you volunteered at a trail race. Had that happened yet or was that sort of a next steps type of thing? That was probably around the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, through Facebook, I saw that Inside Trail, which is this really awesome local yep. racing Great company. Yeah, um, they needed volunteers to help uh, uh, plot the course really early in the morning at Redwood Regional Park, which was like my regional park, and I knew it really well. So I was obviously running trails through there at the time. In hindsight, re- remembering that, um, and so I showed up, volunteered to help mark the course, and then volunteered at the like awards table or whatever, and yeah, saw everyone was like set. Everyone knew each other, and it, they were like so excited to see each other. And I was like, "Wow, this is really whoa, I was so California." Like I was still felt like an outsider in California. Yeah. I was like, "Whoa, everyone's so nice to each other. What is this?" <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then, but like, did see like you know it was like a half marathon, and this woman came in and like won fifty, and she won it. And I was like, "Oh, well, I can run a half marathon in one fifty, even on the trails. Like, interesting." And so it was a combination of like, again, comes back to that. The people were awesome. And I was really curious about my capabilities on the same conditions. So there was a little bit of a competitive pull there. Totally, totally. Mm -hmm. And I I was already running trails. It just had never really occurred to me to race. I don't really know why. Um, But then, yeah, basically through that and then um, through like November Project and um, (laughs) we were just talking about our friend Patty's kind of stoke we signed up for um first trail races together i did a 10k he did a half through inside trail um i think i won he won and then later that year we both signed up for the lottery for our first ultra which was the tahoe rim trail 55k and we both got in um i got a little injured so i didn't really train very really at all i think the longest training run i was 13 miles and then i did 55k in uh at elevation in tahoe and i'm sure the coach in you is dying inside, but um, I survived and got really hooked and kind of the rest is history in some ways. Was that it for you, that Tahoe Rim Trail 55K? totally. Like, it was all of the things I love, um, plus a little bit of extra because I was so out of shape, but great community, like, just unbelievable scenery, like, that challenge, physical challenge, and that feeling of overcoming a physical challenge, um, all of it was, yeah. I have to interject here. It was so cool, fast forward a few years, to go back there with you. I was coaching you at that point. It was your first 50-mile. Yep. And I think you ran it, like, not much slower then it took you to do the 55k yeah. years prior. I just remember you like being like, uh, that was really hard, but it was a much more pleasant experience than the yes. first time around. <laughs> yeah, I was actually trained because I had a coach who didn't let me not run any long runs. <laughs> um, yeah, I chose that for my first 50 miler because I did have like quite a bit of nostalgia. And I also had a little bit of unfinished business. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it was just, it was, that was a really fun course. Moving past the Tower Room Trail 55K, I mean, you had some ups and downs after that, but what other experiences in running in the years following that, like just got you hooked even further and or lit this spark that let you know that with a little bit more time and a little bit more work, you could be 
competitive at a much higher level? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I was kind of stuck in this weird cycle for quite a few years there where I I had requalified for Boston because I had unfinished business there and I wanted to go back. And then I kept requalifying and, and doing slightly better. And so I every year I was in the chasing a PR at Boston in the spring, but then also trying to be a trail runner. And so I think that was really challenging. Do you feel um, a tension between the two? Definitely, um, which is weird, but I think, and we can, I mean, when I, <laughs> the irony is that my fastest marathon team was a few months after my longest and hardest ultra race. So maybe there isn't an actual, maybe it was just a perceived tension. Um, but I think actually when I, sat on my hands in September and did not sign up for Boston the first time and really like went all all in, if you will, on trail running. That was kind of part of it. And then I think I got second at the North Face 50K one year. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got third at Way Too Cool um, and signed with Solomon. And I think those, like the two kind of go together. I don't think that it's like, having a sponsor was the thing, but like, it was like, okay, I'm on the podium at this like really pretty major race. And also like companies are taking me seriously. Um, and so it was just like a little bit of that external validation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there, despite my confidence, I definitely have quite a lot of imposter syndrome when it comes to trail running, I think. Um, just because it's not my primary career and I'm competing against people who, who do take it so seriously, I think. Well, I mean, you take it seriously yourself, but they're doing it 100% of the time. Like, that yeah. is yeah. their job. I mean, they're not, you know, working nine to five at something else the rest of the day and fitting their miles in. I mean, you're, were, now, now you're kind of like whenever it fits in type of gal, but you were an early morning gal, you know, at the time. And I mean, that is a, a big difference. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing about trail running that's cool is there's a lot of people like me. It's not yes. like everybody is a full-time athlete, but there are quite a few full-time athletes. That there are more now in. than ever before, but it's yeah. still a hard way to make a living. Totally, totally. Um, yeah, and so yeah, I think that was a big part of it. And then I I got second at that um, uh, TRT 50-miler, um, which I think also was like, okay. I get longer and I can still like compete. And then um, I think the thing that really, really did it for me though was the race that you mentioned us training together for, but um, <laughs> passing several people in the in last few in miles. Including me. Including you <laughs> um, at the North Face 50 mile, um, which at the time was still very competitive, $10,000 like prize purse. Um, and I got top 10 um, by just kind of completely going all in in the last few miles. And that, that just gave me a whole new level of, of confidence. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for you, but from my vantage point at that point of your career, I thought that was the race of your life. I oh, mean, totally. You really just broke out in, it was. A, in a big way. Yeah. Um, I mean, in your backyard on trails that you trained on, you know, all the time. And do, do you remember where you went by me back <laughs> to do. like, do you remember? Oh, where? I can, I like see it. Uh, I'm like, so do I. I'm like, hey, I think that's Mario, but like, he not, doesn't look great. Like what? But oh, no, oh it's Mario. <laughs> and then I was like, come on, you well, can do it. Well, I remember, I mean, I, I was walking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I had a 12 mile rough patch. I, I did eventually. <laughs> rally and make up 
some time over the last few miles of the course, but I was definitely walking at that point. That was before the big climb out of Muir Beach up coastal and all of that. But I remember you you had like concern for me. Like you came up, like you were shocked to see me, and you're like, Mario, you're like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm like, I'm fine. You're in seventh. Keep rolling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was fun. I mean, and that was again, I think I agree. So that was that's still my favorite like experience in a race. Um because for several reasons, it's hometown trails and just seeing like so many people yeah. that I know and love at aid stations, like cheering their faces off. Like I'll never forget Devin at Tennessee Valley. Like she's like, Steph House right there. And someone else is right there. Go kind of like screaming in my face, like so excited for me. And then, um, yeah, I think I passed quite a few people at the end and like found a whole other gear that I did not know was there and like almost caught two more. That race was so fun because I think five or even four, yeah, five through 10, we were all within like, two minutes of each other or something. I'm, yeah, I'm sure was, I'm exaggerating, but it was really close. No, it was tight. I, I remember looking at that and going over it with you afterward and being really proud of the race that you had, not being like, oh, if you had done X, Y, and Z, I'm like, that was a close race. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, there was just so, it was a chess match and there was yeah. just so much movement, I think, in the last like 10 to 12 miles of, you know, of that race because you, from the time that you passed me, you'd picked up, you picked up another few, yeah. couple spots yeah. Um, yeah. at that point. So. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, and that was the end of 2017. And so then, yeah, 2018 was pretty awesome year. Um, Real quick, I, before we go into 2018, when you got to that point around like 2017, you finish on the podium at Way Too Cool, you have a great 50-mile debut at TRT, you have a phenomenal race at North Face, 50 you signed with Solomon at no point were you ever going to like quit your day job and go into trail running full time but did you feel any more weight on your shoulders did you put any additional pressure on yourself at the time when you I mean could objectively look at it and be like I'm at another level now I'm sure I did um definitely I think uh I definitely got a little bit more concerned about uh like place, you know, positions and races. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was definitely a bit of that pressure there. Um, I think, unfortunately, that's kind of common, right? It's like once you start to do well, both external and internal expectation is that you continue and consistently do well. Um, and that in itself can prevent you from doing well, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a trap. And I, I really do think trap is the right word that a lot of runners fall into, not even at the elite and sub-elite level, but anyone who does this long enough and, you know, moves up in distance or tries to better their time, like as, as runners, like we have this crazy idea that we should always be on this path of ascension. Yeah. And it's like, well, I'm going to be faster the next time out. I'm going to place higher the next time out. And it's like, you can get away with that for a while, which is almost like a, a curse because then you're like, well, that's just how it is. Yeah. Um, but it's like, that's just not reality and it's not realistic at, at all. And then when you do get knocked back, like, oh, well, you run five minutes slower than you did last time. Or, oh, like you were top 10 in your age group at this race and now you're like, you know, 12th. Like that can really like, you know, mess with your head. I don't care what level you're at. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think when you're at that, like, like at the close to the peak of your own fitness or abilities, um, 
right? It's kind of like a, a razor's edge and there isn't that much more room to go. And so like, it's completely normal that there's going to be some fluctuation and like, that's part of maybe getting to that max level of your abilities. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, well on the way there, it's really fun because you're like, you just keep getting better. And, um, but at some point you're going to reach the maximum like of your abilities. And so, yeah. Let's go to 2018. I don't want to tell your story for you, but <laughs> running-wise, I mean, two big highlights from that year were CCC in summer, late summer. Yep. You were top 10. Yep. Big race for you. First 100K. Like, 100K, big, like, I mean, international race, really. I mean, had you represented the U.S. yet? Yes, I can't remember. I did. Yes, you did. Yeah. You ran the world. That was you part ran the of world, the problem, yeah, I think. You ran the world championships. <laughs> um, but then you ran CCC, had a had a great day and I, and I think like we both came away from that being like okay there there could have been like a little bit more there like we we had totally. some nutrition issues and you know the last part of the race didn't go quite as we had had planned but you still held on really well and I remember you saying like I want to come in before midnight mm-hmm. and I remember being out there for you like you're like she made it before midnight uh, I can't, did. can't be too upset but I mean in a long race like that it's always hard but it's also hard when like that last part like you're underfueled and things just aren't going so well so that was like one huge highlight yeah. and then not that long after that just a few months later like we completely switched gears and you ended up running CIM which I still think in the time that I've known you and certainly have worked with you, like I thought that was just one of like the, just the best race that you have ever put together. And on some level, like you exceeded both of our expectations, but I think, and we'll talk about this, but it was the attitude like you brought into that race and then the way that you went about executing it, which I mean, really opened both of our eyes to, I mean, a, a few different things. I'm not going to, it's your story to tell, but um, talk to me about 2018. Yeah. So, um, 2018. How are you thinking about it going into the year coming off of North Face? Yeah. Coming off of North Face, I, I think CCC was my big goal for that year because you have to register pretty early. Mm-hmm. So I had the qualifiers. I got in as like the international elite or whatever. Um, so I got guaranteed entry, which was really awesome. And I could just like focus. And so on the build to that, I did, I think I did way too cool that year. I think that was the year I got in a car accident on the way to way too cool. Yes, it was. Yeah. And I still PR, but I didn't quite break four, which is my goal. And it was just like a big emotional mess, but yeah, you, you were not (laughs) not happy after that. And it was, uh, I mean, it wasn't as muddy as the year before, but it was, it was was still a pretty muddy, muddy year. Yeah. Yeah. And then I went, um, I did like Sonoma 50 that year and, um, kind of I went out a little too hard and was totally underestimated that course cuz it's like not a ton of huge hills but it just I mean Death everyone by a thousand says cuts. it yeah yep. it just like completely ate me alive and I fell back and I ended up with fifth which is still good and I actually ended up with the golden ticket because it just rolled downhill but I was like there's no way I'm ready for that um and I think the week before I had found out that I made the team for the U.S. or the world's, um, which was a 50-mile course in Spain. And we debated doing both, and they were three weeks apart, and we kind of, that also changed my approach to Lake Sonoma a little bit. I kind of didn't quite have the full motivation. 
And then I did Worlds, which was traveling, excitement of this atmosphere, and I just, I had a really rough race. Like, that was just a bad decision on my part to do both, unfortunately. Well, you it, it wasn't a bad decision on, <laughs> on your part. I mean, it was a collective decision. And I remember telling you, like, hey, you have the opportunity to wear the U.S. jersey to represent your country. We don't know when these opportunities come around. It wasn't in the plan, and we haven't exactly been prepping for this type of course, but you kind of have to do it. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, in hindsight... Probably shouldn't have done Lake Sonoma. Yeah, probably shouldn't. We probably shouldn't have done Lake Sonoma, but, you know, it's it's hard at the moment when you're making those decisions, and especially when Lake Sonoma's in our backyard, and you're like, well, I mean... You know, yep. it's there. It's like what I've been prepping for. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, I had that was a bit of a humbling experience to kick off the summer. And I think, you know, it did put me in a bit of a hole because I, I trained through the summer and, and had some pretty big days, like like quad <laughs> Mount Diablos after racing Table Rock. Um, well, that's when we went to Mammoth, too, for yep, July we, 4th. And we went out with Tim Tollefson a couple of days. Our friend Fernando came yeah. with us, who's another mountain goat. I, I certainly am, am not, and I, I got punished that day uh, by the punisher. But, I mean, that's what you needed to do. We're, like, going over to Europe. You're going to yeah. be in the big mountains. Yeah. And, you know, it was it was definitely, like, a worthwhile trip. But you were, I mean, yeah, you were getting the poles out. I mean, yeah. you were on Diablo. I yep. mean, doing some, like, nasty days on Diablo, and it gets, like, hot, hot, hot yeah. in the totally. middle of the summer. But And I think here's where being full-time professional, like if I had had the time to rest, I think it would have been okay. But yeah. I was also going Caring through my licensure um, That's right. exams mm-hmm. and work was pretty stressful. And I just kind of went a little too deep in the training well. So I ended up with a iron deficiency yeah. and ended up with like the last month of training was kind of pretty much shot. So I was like, okay, I'm going to CCC well rested, but like wasn't super confident. And I think ultimately I still had a really solid three quarters of a race. But like you said, um, we had some, did not fuel enough underestimated, like, yeah, fueling needs um, for that long and just totally bonked and got passed by like three people in the last third of the race in the dark, in the rain, which was very sad. But it was still a really great experience. Um, but it lit, I was like, oh man, I could do so much better now that I've learned all these lessons. But that was my last ultra. Yeah. But talking <laughs> about it with you now, from April of that year, like Lake Sonoma to, I mean, that was end of August, early September. Now, like talking about it in, in retrospect, I mean, we debriefed at the time. I'm like, I'm like, that was craziness. It's a lot of like, that was craziness yeah. because, totally. like, it was those are three like very demanding races, very different, but all very demanding in their own way. Um, two of them involved like quite a bit of travel. Yeah. You were like neck deep in this licensure exam. I remember that now. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember when you were going through that and just like the demands that had, you know, on your time. And then, and then found, finding out that you were iron deficient and having yeah. to like, I think we did a good job of that, like writing that ship like in the month leading up to CCC. Where yeah. It's like, okay, well, you know, we can't overdo the training aspect of things right now because that wouldn't be in your best interest. Like, we got to get your iron levels up and then just rely on, like, this, you know, foundation that, that you've laid. And, and it mostly worked out. Yeah, like, it yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was still a great experience. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I can't, it's wild to think about, but that was my last ultra was, yeah, 2018, yeah. August. Not the last one you lined up for. Um, True. We can get into that in a minute, but you ended the year at CIM. CIM. Yes. <laughs> and I remember thinking about that. I'm like, well, it'd be good to just like switch gears and get away from like this 
long trail stuff yeah. for well, a I little wanted- while because it'd been it'd been quite some time. I don't think yeah. I had coached you for a marathon to that point. It was all like trail and ultra stuff. I think so, yeah. And I wanted to go for the Olympic trials qualifier eventually. So the I don't know if you remember, but the plan was to do that one and then do Napa in the spring mm-hmm. as like UCIM as like a get your road legs back kind of deal. Yeah, and, and like see, yeah. like just see like see what, where you're at. Yeah. Because I mean, your marathon PR at the time, I mean, it was like 302, 304. Something like that. It, it was 30 something. Yeah. I can't, I can't remember yeah. exactly. Um, and then we went into that with like a pretty solid but fairly like short training block. She took some time off after, you know, CCC, but we condensed some stuff in there. I remember we all went up to Sonoma County, raced that half marathon yes. in Healdsburg, I yeah. believe yep, yep. it was. And then you lined up for CIM. And I don't think we had talked about this, but. It was a brilliant move on <laughs> your part and one that I, I fully support, but I never like push it, especially if someone hasn't done it before. But you didn't wear a watch at CIM. I did not wear a watch. Um, I, as an analytic data-driven person, it was like kind of scary, but... Uh, Overly analytical, according yeah. <laughs> to your previous personality test. Just yeah. wanted to point that out. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, my... It's going to sound so lame, but my brother's dog, who we lived with for many years, who was like the sweetest dog on the entire planet, um, died that week. And I was heartbroken Um, and was just like, I don't have the emotional energy to like put that much into this race. At least that's what I thought at the time. And so I was like, fuck it. I'm just not going to wear a watch. I'm like, I'm just going to just go for it. And um, it... I still heard some people yelling out splits, which was very annoying, but um, it worked out in the end, although <laughs> it's pretty funny how it ended up. But I, here, go ahead. I remember talking to you in the week leading up to that, and, and you were an emotional mess. I, I remember that very vividly. And I was like, I can't talk to her about a race plan <laughs> right now. Like, cause I just knew like you you weren't in the place for it. Like yeah. it was going to kind of go with no, no, to no fault of your own, like yeah. in one ear and out the other. And I was like, you know what? I'm like, it's been a long and interesting year. I'm like, this is your first road marathon in a while. I'm like, just go have fun. Yeah. Like, just have fun. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you you decided not to wear a watch, and I mean, the rest is history. I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah, it's a funny story though because I couldn't find my corral, and so I just like jumped over a thing at the start and like got in the front not really thinking it through. Um, I remember seeing you there because I raced that day <laughs> as well. And I was like, oh, I didn't think you had the bib to be <laughs> I didn't. Um, I did not. Uh, and somehow I ended up in the elite corral and I didn't realize it at the time. Um, and so we're running along um, and uh, all of these people are taking the bottles, like the, the elite bottles off of the tables. And I'm like, these assholes like they're taking like the leftover elite bottles that's so stupid like you don't know what's in there like you could get sick like whatever and then it dawned on me slowly like as I heard the splits that like oh okay I mean I was at the very back of the elite like don't I'm not running like a 230 pace here but um yeah I was like oh okay but you (laughs) you were on OTQ pace for a while I was I I PR'd in the half marathon at halfway so um just pro tip don't do that (laughs) but um, I, I fell off about three minutes in the last half of the race, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I ran a, a two forty eight, and I think it was like a fourteen or something minute PR. 
Um, yeah, it was a big breakthrough yeah, for you. Yeah, and it was yeah, it was very exciting. So I was like, wow, okay, if I can do that on like ultra legs, like that's pretty exciting for. Yeah, that was a cool moment because I ran that day as well. Ran my personal best, and I had a bunch of athletes racing that day. So I just, I sh- I wasn't supposed to, but I hung around like in that <laughs> like finishing shoot, and I was just moving around so that they wouldn't like kick me out. And I was expecting you around like 256. Mm-hmm. I was like 255, 256. Like given how things have been going, like training had you know had been solid, but we just didn't know you had done a road yeah. marathon in a while, and that would have been like I like an eight or t- eight or ten minute PR. Yeah. And I remember like turning around. I'm like, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I was like, what'd you? I'm like, do you break 250? You're like, I ran 248. I was like, yeah. holy shit. Yeah. I know, and I remember my friend Devin um, was like running, just doing her long run, and had the tracker up. And she told me later she was like, "I saw you your half marathon split," and I was just like screaming at you, like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "I don't know, I was just running." But yeah, so that was exciting. But uh, talk to me about racing without a watch. How was the mindset different for you? I mean, in an ultra, I mean, you don't chase splits like you do even in a marathon, but you're aware of how well you're moving, what the vertical gain is, like all these different things. But I mean, even all our workouts, like I give you, I remember doing mile repeats with Mm -hmm. you. like, all right, we're going to try to do these in six minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to do 800s and try to do like 250 or whatever. So we're aware of those things like in training, but like you get into this race environment and then you're not, I mean, you're hearing splits here and there, but you're not really getting that consistent feedback. Yeah. I definitely heard splits because I ended up with that OTQ group and there Mm. were pacers. And then I actually also found a fellow ultra runner, um, Camelia Mayfield. So Mm. we were running together for quite a while and she was kind of giving me some, some data. Um, when I asked, she wasn't being like, and we're at, you know, I was like, what are we running? Cause it felt good. Like she was like, Oh, we're running 608. And I felt totally fine. I was like, But there was just less of that. I think early in the race, when you look at your watch and you see how fast you're running, you know, and you feel good, you can get, um, you kind of get second guess yourself like, oh, am I going too fast? Or like, or if you're a little bit slow, you can like freak out of like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm falling behind. And you just get in these like awful places. It doesn't really happen to me as much in trail, but on road races, it Mm. totally is a trap. Um, so there's just less of that. Um, and I was just with this group and I was like, okay, I'm just going to settle in and just like chill out and run with this group. Was Um, it kind of exhilarating because you were like, I'm just going to try and hang with these people rather than try to stay like on this split? Yeah, it it was a bit more like organic or, you know, just kind of like letting my body do what it needs to do versus like my brain trying to say this is what we're supposed to run now. Um, And I think that's part of why it went well, like... I definitely went out a bit too fast because of that. Like normally you might have that split and you might slow yourself down a bit. Um, but I just let my, I just let my legs do what they were going to do. Um, and then towards the end, like once I started to fall off the group, there was a bit of that, like, Oh shoot. Um, but by that point I was like, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So, <laughs> Forgive me if this feels like it's coming out of left field. And I don't just mean at the time after CIM, but maybe like, right now or just how you think about yourself and identity in general. Did you think of yourself as, oh, I'm an ultra runner and I'm just doing this road marathon or I'm 
a runner and I do all of these different things because prior to racing CIM, I mean, you did a half in the buildups. We knew CIM was on the schedule. I mean, it was like a few years where you were just exclusively focused on trail and ultra stuff. You sign a contract with Solomon as a trail and ultra runner. And I've got to think on some level, you absorb that into your identity. You're like, well, this is what I am. Like I'm, I'm an ultra runner. And this is just something I've, I've always just kind of been curious about with different people, how they think about it in terms of their identity. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that's probably pretty accurate because even though I ran track and even though I ran marathons, like I was never a super contributing member of the track team. I wasn't recruited. I walked on. I didn't really ever score points. Like, it just felt like something I did. I didn't feel like a track runner. Mm -hmm. And I think marathons were, like, the next natural extension of that. And, like, I'm obviously not at an elite level in the marathon, um, but knew I could do, like, pretty well. And to me, being able to qualify for the Olympic trials would would like be that signifier of being an elite level. So that was the first time where I got close and was like, oh, okay, like, wow. Um, whereas prior to that- Maybe I'm I, good at this too. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like prior to that, I was, and I, I think I was at the elite level of ultra running. And so like it felt, you know, easier. And it was like something different where I came to it, you know, and like took it on wholeheartedly. And so it was like, okay, yes, I am a, not even just ultra, but like trail and ultra runner. Um, who is just now like running this marathon too? Yeah, going a little further, I don't know, down the trail, down the road. Uh, in the in the context of what we were just talking about, fast forward to like 2019. You're coming off of a successful end to the year in 2018. Uh, 2019 was rough for you. Um, it yeah. was it was not a you know a, a great year running wise compared to the two years prior and you did line up for an ultra at the end of that year it was north face 50k which just getting to the start line was sort of a a big deal but you ended up not finishing that race but talk to me a bit about 2019 give me the cliff's notes version of of that year because i think 2020 to now (laughs) is its own story story. yeah well 2019 is pretty easy to talk about in a short time because basically i signed uh, a new contract with solomon which was even more exciting like great opportunities to race internationally i had a very exciting race schedule Mm -hmm. lined up um for the summer but first wanted to tackle the marathon um And I sprained my ankle in January, kind of took out all of my road marathon hopes. um, And I think ultimately uh, resulted in the injury I got later in the spring, which was a stress reaction in my hip. Um, I think it changed my gait and put too much pressure on the other leg. Um, And so 2019 was a lot of rest and then quite a lot of rehab um, and no international travel, no going to Alaska, no running Zagama. It was like really bummer because I, I like had such an Yeah, you had grand ambitions for that year. It was and like, like Mount Marathon, yeah. Zagama, I think Sierra Zanal yeah. was on yep. there. Was- An amazing support lined up. But um, I made it to Pikes Peak Ascent, which I ran on like nine 
miles of training a week <laughs> just for just to like pull the bandaid off, um, which was really cool and very humbling. And then, yeah, I made it to the start line of North Face 50K. Um, originally hoped to run the 50 mile, but recognized like that just wasn't realistic. Um, was really excited to race Kara Goucher and hopefully beat her. And I was beating her. <laughs> um, she's a hero of mine, so it's really cool to race against your heroes. Um, but I strained my quad on that same climb, Heather Cutoff, yep. um, and pulled out at cardiac um, and just felt awful from the beginning. Like I strained my quad, but I had no energy. My legs felt like like jelly noodles the whole time. Um, and then a week later, well, I, you thought you were sick. You're like, I must, you're like, I must be sick or something yeah, like that. Cause I you're just, like, I just, you're like, I felt, I just did not feel like even on my worst days, like I don't feel that bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was. And like, I've had weird feelings at the beginning of races. And then once you get going, it goes away. This did not go away. I just felt awful. Um, yeah. And then a week later I found out I was pregnant. So no surprise there. <laughs> it's like there, there was like a silver lining to it. You're like, okay, well that explains some things explains and that's something, something to be excited about. Yes. And, yeah. But but man, all right, at least like I, I have not something to, to blame, but I know why I felt as bad as I did yeah. when I lined up. Yeah. Prior to finding out that you were pregnant, I mean, just this frustrating year. This is the last race of the year. You strain your quad, you know, you feel like crap. Like just when you looked back at the year, were you like glad that it was over? Did it seem like it was a fitting ending to the year? Like, take me inside your head at the end of 2019 before finding out that, that I was, you were pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not much of a crier, and I, like, cried pretty hard at the yeah. top of cardiac. Also, because there were a lot of really lovely friends there who were, like, usually when people try to hug you, that's when you, and, like, yeah. So Hal and Kim were there, and I just was, like, bawling. But, um... I guess it felt fitting. I was just really disappointed because, um, and this kind of rolls into the two years that follow, but by that point, being an ultra runner or trail runner, just a runner had become a pretty important part of my identity Mm -hmm. and myself, I won't say my self-worth, but just like my reason for, you know, having energy every day and the excitement of the potential to continue to, um, grow in the sport was like a really big driver for my life. And then that got taken away for, you know, several months, um, of, of rest and then rehab. And so, yeah, it's it just w- like a lot of start and stops. Yeah. For you. Yeah. So it was really disappointing. Um, but I guess it, it felt fitting, but, um, just really frustrating. Before uh, finding out that you were pregnant and that was going to be your big focus for <laughs> the next, nine months and before the pandemic shut the world down in March of 2020, how were you thinking about recalibrating for the next year? Were you thinking like, okay, I just got to get myself healthy before I start to think about anything? Like, do you remember where you were at during that time? I, I I didn't think, um, I didn't think it was like a big, uh, shift. Like I felt like, okay, that was a strain or whatever, but I put in some solid training. Like I just need to couple of weeks to let that recover. And then, um, I didn't race, so I could do, I think I had signed up for canyons, um, or no, uh, black Canyon hundred K, um, and was planning to do, to try to redo the 2019 in terms of like the summer, um, European races. And so I think it was just like, okay, that was a hiccup. And I didn't get that like 
affirmation of my fitness by like doing well in this race, but it didn't feel like a huge um, letdown in that way. Like I, I still had this trajectory for 2020 lined up and I felt confident that I would be ready for it. Did the running related frustrations of 2019 spill over into other areas of your life? Meaning did you feel like less of yourself because you couldn't train and race to the level that you wanted to? Did you notice that your like interactions with people in your life, your husband, your friends, like people that you would train with was a bit different? Let, yeah. Help me understand that side of it. Um, yes, it was, it was a huge impact on me. Um, I think one story that is a good reflection of one of the lower points, but my good friend, Laura, that I mentioned earlier, um, had moved back to Massachusetts, um, and had a baby and she came to visit San Francisco with her son, um, who I hadn't met. And I was too depressed to leave the house Mm -hmm. to go see her. Um, and so I missed out on meeting her son who I still haven't met. And like, she was really upset that I didn't like make the effort to come see her. And I totally understand why we talked about it and she understood afterwards. But like, it was one of those things where like, I felt too bad and and not like myself to get out of the house. And then I felt even worse because then I let this thing derail something that matters to me, which is my relationships with my friends. So it was kind of, there was a lot of that, which was just like a drop in the bucket compared to 2020 and 2021. (laughs) Were you aware of it at the time? Not really, somewhat, um, but I couldn't do anything about it. Like, in hindsight, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that's what, that happened. And at the time, I knew that I was doing something stupid, but I couldn't not do it. I think we've all been there in, yeah. our, in our own ways. <laughs> so looking ahead to 2020, now you know that you're pregnant. So your next nine months, as far as that goes, you're like, okay, this is going to be like my main focus. I've got to, you know, stay healthy. I've got to keep my baby healthy. Um, obviously like my body's going to change. My life is going to change. My goals are going to change, uh, until she's born. How, like, how are you starting to recalibrate at that time? Like when you found out like, okay, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a baby like nine months from now, like, were you were you even thinking about running at oh, that yeah. point? Were you and Braden just talking about like okay, like well, where like where are we gonna live because now we need more room? I mean, yeah, you're you're in your one bedroom uh, apartment at the time. Like we, we're yeah. gonna need more room. Like all of those things. Like um, take me into take me into your head. Oh God, it's so embarrassing to admit now, but um, I we definitely had to find a new place to live, and there was all of that. But before the pandemic started, um, I. I think I had unrealistic expectations, not even expectations, hopes. I think it was really hard for me to let go of that desire to have that next goal. And so I was like, oh, well, Cape Town, um, 100K or 50K or whatever is in November. And I, I'm. I remember, I remember you mentioned yeah, this. Yeah. And so. I'm due to give birth in July. Like, that's totally enough time. Like if I run the whole time I'm pregnant, like I'll lose some fitness obviously, but like I'll come out of giving birth, like a little bit of rest and then ready to just train for this. I think I, I don't think I was crazy enough to say I would do the hundred K. I think I would, I said I wanted to do like the low, whatever the lower one was, but like. But you needed that thing to kind of serve as a guiding light for you to be like, okay, like after she's born mid year, I'm going to. I'm going to work toward this for the next like yeah. four months. Were you looking at other women who 
you knew or knew had had kids in recent years and how they came back and just basing your own expectations off of that? To some extent, like I, um, I think unfortunately most of the stories that you hear about are the ones that did something, you know, some physical achievement, like within some crazy short timeline after giving birth. Like Kara Goucher talks about, she started training again for her marathon a week after giving birth because she had no maternity leave in her contract and that was the only way she could make money. And mm-hmm. like, that's an extreme example and I did not think I was Kara Goucher, but like, that's just that's just like, you know, a goalpost or, or a- It's a point of reference. It's a point of reference, right? And that's the type of story that you hear about most. Um, and so you're like, okay, even if you're trying to be rational, you're like, I know I'm not them, um, and even if I like scale back like three months, whatever, still feels like that could be realistic, right? Like it's so impossible to imagine a world in which you don't recover for 18 months. Like that's, unless you've been there, it's unfathomable. Like it's this kind of thing, like you can't imagine it because it seems like it's not possible, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, I... I had that in the back of my head and then um, was doing more research like while I was pregnant and and kind of learning more um, after the pandemic like had shut down the possibility of this type of race. That was when I learned that three months or 12 weeks is actually a bit more of a realistic expectation to be able to start running in Mm -hmm. the first place. Um, And then like, you know, started to learn more, but you have to do a lot of digging. Like if you just kind of look on the surface, it's, it's all of these like, oh, I popped a baby out and then I climbed Mount Everest. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but that's the kind of general tone. Help me to understand this. And and this is individual to you because you can't speak for anyone else. But I mean, you're going into this. I mean, yeah, 2019 was a rough year in terms of like competitions and whatnot for you. But I mean, you're a badass athlete. I mean, you've run 100K through the mountains. You've run a really fast marathon. You've put in big training weeks. I mean, you've, you know, climbed mountains. You've dealt with all kinds of, of weather. Like ob- objectively, I'm going to say objectively to, to me, like you're a, you're a badass. And on some level, I feel like all athletes, like when they do that sort of stuff, like you tell yourself, like, I'm a badass. Like I've done like all of these hard things. Was there any of that for you where you were like, I've done all kinds of like, you know, hard things and like, yes, this is going to be like really hard, but getting back up to, I mean, 50 K like in four to five months, like I'm a badass. That's no big deal. I think there was probably some of that. Like I, I, I thought of it as, yeah, just the hard work of training. Like I had no conception of how I, it didn't occur to me that pregnancy itself was doing so much wear um, and tear and damage to to my body. Mm. Like it, it honestly didn't occur to me. And this was early pandemic, um, no vaccines, no in-person appointments for anything like randomly looking on the internet to try to find information. Um, and so, yeah, the, I thought that the biggest thing I had to deal with was fitness fitness, and giving birth and mm-hmm. like recovering from giving birth. And it did not like, and I had quite a few um, uh, friends, teammates from US team um, and others who were a little bit ahead of me who gave birth and were running pretty quickly. And so I'm like, okay, like that'll be me raced on. Yeah. Like they seem fine. Um, and I think that's really common is you, you compare yourself to your peers. And I mean, 
every and everyone knows and every single birth story is caveated with like everybody is different and everybody is different but also most people don't share everything and nor should they have to but like you see someone out there running or, or like doing a, P, a marathon PR like four months after giving birth you have no idea if they ended up with stress fractures two months later like yeah. you just don't know um, yeah and to interject here, I mean, that's an easier story to tell. People are going to be more willing to tell the story that has, let's just call it a happy ending. Yeah. Like, where it's like, oh, well, yep, I, I went through this hard thing that is pregnancy and childbirth, but look, I, I got back to doing the thing that I, I love to do, and like, I feel more like myself for doing that, and I'm inspiring my child by getting out there to to do that like it's like it's a great story to tell yeah. like that is like very in, inspiring but it's like most you know people are are private in their own ways but especially if you're like a professional athlete and part of your job is to like tell your story like well that's an easy one to tell i don't mind telling it like yeah. there's there's nothing you know embarrassing or really like you know um, necessarily emotionally painful like about that versus yeah. the flip side where you know it's just a struggle Um, and it it goes like really hard and it's like those people are going to be, I mean, we see this with just injured athletes. Mm -hmm. Like you don't hear from them for months because it's hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And some people do. And when they do, other people who hear that story see themselves in it and they're Mm -hmm. like, Oh, well I'm, I'm the same way. But I imagine like with pregnancy and and childbirth, and this is just as a a male outside observer (laughs) when I was on social media Mm -hmm. and like what I see in the bigger publications, it's always the the former. It's always yeah. the success story. Um, rarely is it ever the story that is. I had this, you know, really long, slow return to running. I I despised running for a while. My body rebelled against me. Like I don't know. I feel that's a that's a much like harder story to tell. And they're just not out there quite yeah. as much. So. Like if you're just observing whether you're like in your case pregnant or not, like you see that you're like, oh well, this is this is the norm. Like the norm is the success story. Yeah. Like, and I'm just I'm like, of course I'm going to be a success story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was what part of what spurred me. It's been about a year actually. I just realized I'm due to kind of write the the follow up. But I wrote an article about a year ago, just being like, this is not the happy ending story. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I was only six months postpartum at the time, but. Um, even after that, I continued to decline and was uh, at one point, I remember sitting on my couch watching the amazing coverage of Black Canyons um, and just sitting and turning my body to try to look at my husband sent like waves of excruciating pain through my entire body, my yeah. like midsection. Um, and I have a pretty high pain tolerance. Um, and so that was even after I wrote that. And then, yeah, that's why I wrote that was because uh, – and the, the responses I got was just like unreal. <laughs> the yeah. number of women who were in like similar or, you know, related situations. I shared that post in my newsletter at the time. And I think a lot of people reached out to you directly, not just because of mm-hmm. my newsletter, but in general for putting that out there. And I heard from my readers that – Thank, like, thank you for sharing this. I've not seen this story told elsewhere, and it was really helpful for me as a woman. Or I sent this to my wife, and she suddenly feels yeah. less alone. And but again, like that's that's rare that yeah. people are are that open and honest when things didn't go well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um, 
I don't know. It, it felt like something I just kind of had to do because I, I also did feel really alone. It was not just because of that situation, but it is still, you know, COVID pandemic. Like, yeah. yeah, I think it was just kind of like, well, if I'm feeling like this, I'm sure someone else is. And like, what's the harm in just putting it out there? Like, yeah, you know. <laughs> Before we dig in a little further, take me back to your pregnancy itself. I mean, you ran through a good chunk of your pregnancy. You did have some issues, but nothing that like prevented you from running completely. I mean, I think you were running up to like eight months or something like that. Yeah, I I continued running. Actually, my yeah first trimester, I felt pretty terrible. Just like they call it morning sickness, but it's all the time. And I never threw up, which would have maybe been nicer to feel the relief of throwing up, but I didn't. Um, so I think I, the most I ran during pregnancy was like 30 miles in a week. And I think it was mm-hmm. early second trimester, like before I get too big. And, um, it was right before the pandemic started. Um, and yeah, I, you know, in hindsight, I didn't have any like major problems. Um, but the thing I'm still dealing with my adductor that started in the second trimester, and I tried to do a virtual appointment to get it addressed. But I think the biggest thing is no red flags, lots of little things that as a runner, we're used to pushing through discomfort. And since none of the things I were feeling felt like baby-related, I don't know how better to put it. It didn't feel yeah. like I was harming the baby, and nothing was like excruciating. I was just like, well... This is just like the discomfort of running while pregnant. I'll like, just deal with it. I'll just deal with it. Okay. And if I'm going to have one piece of unsolicited advice for <laughs> pregnant women who are trying to run, like, don't just deal with it. Like, go see a, ideally a pelvic physical therapist because um, small things like can add up over time and turn into really big things. And basically, yeah, for me, it was, it was the strain of pregnancy on, I'm a small person and my baby was above, slightly above average when she was born. Um, and just carrying her, like there's, the pictures are insane, like towards the end, but put a lot of strain on um, tissue that was already, you know, uh, just from years of slight imbalances and like my stress reaction, like it was all already a little bit strained, um, resulted in, yeah, me not being able to run at all for over a year and not train properly until very recently. And I, she just turned 18 months old. Let's fast forward to the birth itself, because I think it's important to note how that went for you. And we don't have to get into like all the gory graphic details. <laughs> I love details, all the gory graphic but details. <laughs> let's just, let's just say that Isla came storming into the world. I think the way that you wrote about it is you were training for a marathon and then you step in line and they said, okay, you're going to run the 100 meter dash. Yes. It, yes. So basically, um, again, I didn't have any in-person like Lamaze classes or whatever you want to call them. A good friend sent me a video and that was all we had. And it basically all of the prep is that like, you got to be ready for a long ass labor with lots of pain and like slowly getting worse pain and like, you know, breathing through it. And so like mentally, I'm like, okay, I got, I got this. this. Yeah. That is my jam. This is what I do. This yeah. is what I do. Um, and yeah, I started to feel a little bit of like labor stuff the day before my due date. Um, and overnight, it just like went really quick. And we went into the hospital um, about 5, 5.30 a.m. on her due date. <laughs> and um, 
yeah, the doctor like went to check and my water broke and she was like, okay, well we got time. Like you can go out to the car and get your stuff. Cause we left the stuff in the car. I'm like, it's shift change. So we'll all be back in like an hour to check on you. Yeah. Like, no one was in a rush and you'll still be here and it'll be fine. And then like 10 minutes later, I am like screaming my face off and Braden, poor Braden. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know what he went through, <laughs> but he was like, um, uh, trying to get the nurses and they're like, oh, she's just having a contraction, like suck it up lady. Um, and I was like, no, no, this is not. And they checked and she, well, like she was coming basically. And they were like, oh shit. Like, yeah. yeah. Pivot. <laughs> Pivot. Um, I had the, uh, like literal TV moment where I was on the gurney being like sprinted through cause they, they don't let you labor in like the place you're actually going to give birth, um, usually or you don't transition you till later. And so, yeah, running <laughs> through the hospital maternity ward. And yeah, she, she came out really fast, but she got stuck. Um, and, you know, a little bit of a gory detail, but turns out my pelvic floor muscles were actually like way, way too strong and too tight, um, probably from being a runner and not having had any pelvic care. Um, and so that means they tore. So I had some pretty bad um, yeah, birth no, injuries. there's no give there. No, yeah. And that's like what they need to do. Like they just need to get out of the way and yeah. they couldn't get out of the way. Um, and so, yeah, I had some tears and cuts um, to recover from. We don't have a ton of time left here, but fast forwarding to after you gave birth, she comes out, she's okay. They take care of you, how long were you in the hospital and what did those weeks look like immediately after giving birth? Like how long were you kind of out of commission for? Um, so we were actually in the hospital for, I think it was, ended up being two and a half days. I was literally just saying to Brayden, my husband, it felt like we were there for weeks, but she, um, she had to be in the NICU for a, a, a bit and, um, uh, I was trying to breastfeed and so I had to walk back and forth because COVID, um, only one of us could go and we couldn't stay in there with her. And so they say you're supposed to just like not move from your bed for the first two weeks after giving birth. And here I was hours after giving birth, like walking back yeah. and forth, super stressed. Yeah. And like super stressed that there was something wrong with her. She ended up being fine. Um, and we didn't sleep for three days. Like my, my teeth hurt. Like I've, I don't, can't convey how tired we were in any other way than like I was so tired that my teeth ached. Um, so that was pretty stressful. And um, yeah, I cried every single day, multiple times a day. Like the hormones were crazy. And I just felt like there was no way I could do this. Like this is what I'm talking about, the confidence shaking. It was just like the combination of hormones and the enormity of this life that we were responsible for was just really hard. Um, so... Yeah, I was, um, I started some like really light kind of stuff with breathing and just trying to like restore the um, connection to the core pretty early after giving birth, but was, was trying to take um, not doing anything active seriously for at least um, two weeks. Were you prepared at all for, I mean, you didn't know that you were going to have such uh, like a, a I'm just call it like a violent birth. Um, I mean, it really sounds like a, a violent act that that occurred, especially given the intensity of it for you. But did you have like any idea what that was going to do to your body or what kind of shape it was going to leave it in when things finally started to settle down? 
No, um, I, I didn't. Uh, I don't think you can really. Like, I, I was terrified towards the end. Like when I saw how big I was, and I know how small my pelvis is. I was like this. I'm. I was very scared actually. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I had no. I don't think it's possible to. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe if you watch enough videos and like talk to enough people, but like you can't know what it's like until you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So as weeks pass, hormones are raging. How long did like the intense hormonal roller coaster <laughs> last? Do you remember? I mean, were you just so tired that it's all kind of a a blur, or was it was it just kind of like this big up and down sort of thing for a few weeks? I would say a few months. I few mean, months. Okay. I I wrote. Oh God, was it like? Might have been like two weeks. Afterwards was the first day I didn't cry. It's like okay, made it through a whole day without crying, and I think that was also the first day that we went for a, a stroller walk outside as a family. Mm-hmm. I guess it was about that time. Um, I just didn't feel like I could physically like walk mm-hmm. that much, and so I, and I was trying to take it very seriously. Um, so it's like amazing moving my body and seeing the sunshine were the two things where I first magic magic and I stopped stopped crying but it was really hard I also had we had really big trouble um, breastfeeding and she was losing weight and it was it was difficult and more stress yeah just yeah Um, so I mean I I think I just said this recently but I actually only just started to feel like myself about a week ago you stopped breastfeeding I recently. I stopped breastfeeding, yeah, um, about three weeks ago. <laughs> and it takes a while to kind of taper off. So, um, yeah, like I can actually form whole sentences now and my vocabulary is starting to come back. And like I lifted earlier today and felt like strong in all of the muscles in my kind of hip core area. And like I've been working on this stuff for so long and it's just been really, really slow and hard, I think. Partially just because I had a lot of layers of issues that have just added up over time and were exacerbated by pregnancy and birth. But um, yeah, part of it is just, I think we need to normalize that it can take a really long time to feel functional. And like, we all function, like every, every mom like figures out a way to do it, but it doesn't mean that you feel like yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and yourself is different. Like I am now a mom, but like I could feel part of, part of that part of me from before I was a mom that's like a little bit Oh, it's still, like it's still there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's important to have both, I think. Like I love being a mom and I love um, all of the challenges that it brings. Okay. I've kept you a lot longer than I promised you that I would. I thank you so much for your time and generosity and sharing your story. There is a lot that we are unfortunately like skipping over here. You've gone into a lot of detail on your blog, amythepunisher.com. You share a lot on social media. So hopefully people listening to this who don't know your story can fill in some of the gaps there. But I have two more things that I want to ask you before we land this plane. And the first is, as a mom, as an athlete who has goals that she still wants to pursue in the sport. What advice would you give to, let's say, mostly new moms, but any mom who is thinking about having a baby, about 
to have a baby, but also wants running to remain a big part of their life? Ooh, good one. Um, okay, for while pregnant, I think um, get professional care, like from a pelvic PT while you're pregnant, um, especially second trimester and later just to help guide because again you may not feel like anything is wrong but like we have no frame of reference for what could eventually become a longer term problem so it's so much better to spend that time and money like before you becomes a big issue and frankly it could even help with birth so like I can't stress the benefit of a good pelvic PT enough and unfortunately it's not usually or is often not covered by insurance. And so it can seem like, well, I don't really need it. I'm not going to pay for it. I would say it's so worth the investment. <laughs> You're investing in yourself. Yeah. And I would have saved myself thousands of dollars of postpartum care if I had been able. It was, again, early pandemic, so I couldn't. But if I had been able to do it um, before I gave birth. So that's that's like the one thing for... Um, for pregnancy. And then I think afterwards it's, um, give yourself grace. So like, don't push yourself too hard. Um, and don't feel guilty for taking time for yourself because you're going to be a better mother, wife, partner, whatever. Um, if you have filled up your tank and if running, or whatever, hiking, whatever form of exercise fills up your tank. Yeah. Like, it's important to do that. And I think for my last piece is for both is like, it's really easy to say this, and I tried to do this, but it's really hard, is just try to, I would say, expand your expectations. I think it's actually impossible to let go of expectations altogether. So I get really annoyed when people are like, oh, well, you should have just not had any expectations because I don't think that's real, like realistic as a human. But just try, if you can, <laughs> to expand your realm of expectations for both pregnancy and afterwards because it's a huge transformation and um, it's impossible to predict what's going to happen. I love that. I've never heard it framed that way, not just in terms of pregnancy, but just expectations in general. I mean, we hear that all the time. Just let go of your expectations. Don't go into the race. Don't have any expectations. I like this idea of expand your expectations. Um, you know, because through expansion, you're just extending the the limits of like what that could be. And I think, you know, oftentimes it's like, I mean, no limits is not realistic. Yeah. Um, but also like, you know, you, you can't, you can't have like a ton of limits either because that's very restricting. So this yeah. idea of, of expansion just feels very much like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just feel like it's, and maybe this is just me, maybe other people can, I just feel like it's not actually possible to actually have zero expectations. Like, yes, you might have lower expectations or, you know, whatever, but like it, I think it's really hard to go into anything and have no idea of like what you want it to be or what you think it will be or, you know, an expectation. So last question to bring this back to you. How are you, Amy Leadham, thinking about the rest of this year, 2022, and what your relationship to running looks like, not only over the next few months, but over the next few years? Yeah. So um, I am fortunate to work with a brand like Solomon who has stuck with me through all of this. Like 
I haven't raced <laughs> in two years or more, and um, I'm, they've still signed me as an athlete for 2022. Um, and they have a really cool race series um, for Sub Ultra Trail, um, which is really exciting to me because it feels uh, attainable. Like it, uh, trying to train for an ultra right now just feels like way too much of a stretch. Um, and so my hope, my hope is by the summer to be able to compete at Broken Arrow 26K, go do the Pikes Peak Ascent, actually able to run more than <laughs> five miles and then um, do the um, uh, Flagstaff Sky Peaks 26K. So those are all part of the Golden Trail National Series in the US. And I think two of them are part of the global series. So it'll be some good competition. Um, but I'm really excited about this kind of sub-ultra. Um, Me too. It's funny because I'm getting older and therefore like slower. And so should not be shortening my races. But at the same time, I kind of don't care. <laughs> like I, I'm just excited to feel like I can go into a, you know, a 26k and just go balls to the wall lack of a better term <laughs> um and not really be worried about like overcooking myself and have fun hey i get it i love it i mean you're talking to someone who's nearing 40 and raced 1500 meters yesterday yeah. for the first time in 16 years so i mean i'm Certainly not faster than I was 16 yeah. years ago, but there is something fun about just like, you know, dropping back down and just racing hard yeah. for a short period yeah. of time and feeling that rush of yeah. competition. Okay, I've, I've got one more, and I promise this is the last one. How has your relationship with running changed over the past two years? Oh, man. Um, I don't, I definitely never hated it because. I wouldn't have been so distraught about not being able to do it if I hated it, but I I would say I was afraid of it for a very long time because again every every step was like quite a lot of pain, um, and so that really sucked. Um, but I needed some space. Like I I stepped back from social media and there weren't really races going on, but I just kind of had to take a break from trying to follow the races and the results that were going on because it just felt like too much of a stab to the heart. Um, uh, like I said, I, I, there were many times where I genuinely didn't think I was ever going to be able to run like even like three miles again. Um, and so, yeah, there was this kind of period where I was trying to let go of it because I thought I wasn't going to be able to do it. Um, and that was really hard, like grieving. <laughs> um, and then it started to come back, uh, and the possibility of it, like, came back and now it's just like it makes me feel alive I'm better I'm a better partner now that I'm able to run again I'm much better at my job like much more efficient and present and all of that just because I'm able to both like release when I'm running and fill up my tank um so it's it's been a tough road but it's here to stay I hope and it's it's such a fundamental part of uh of me that it, I really need it to be there in some form, um, for the long haul. And that's my only goal really. Like, yes, I want to compete and it's fun, but like, I won't do anything that puts the ability to run for a long time into jeopardy because I've seen what that's like. And my life without running is very tough. 
That's really beautiful. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up this conversation. I am excited to support you in your goals the rest of this year and hopefully beyond. I'm grateful for your friendship. Thank you and Braden and Isla for coming over here today. We went on a nice hike before having this conversation. It's been an awesome afternoon. Amy Leadham, thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was, it was great. Okay, that's it for this week's episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. A big thank you to Tracksmith and the members of our Patreon community for making this episode possible. Tracksmith is a brand for committed runners like you and me. They aim to celebrate, support, and contribute to running's distinct culture in everything that they do, from offering considered and original products for training, racing, and recovery, to creating experiences that make running more rewarding, more connected, and more meaningful. When you shop at tracksmith.com slash Mario and or if you use the code Mario22 when you check out, you'll get free shipping on your order and 5% of your purchase will go to the Tracksmith Foundation, a nonprofit that aims to give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field. When you shop at tracksmith.com slash Mario and or if you use the code Mario22 when you check out, you'll get free shipping on your order and 5% of your purchase will go to the Tracksmith Foundation, a nonprofit that aims to give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field. The Morning Shakeout's Patreon community is where super fans of the podcast and newsletter can support my work directly, interact with me, and also gain access to some exclusive content like the Weekly Rundown, which is a Patreon-only podcast that I co-host with my friend Billy Yang, a monthly Coach's Corner discussion where I cover training-related topics with a fellow coach or coaches, and other fun perks that pop up from time to time. You can join for as little as a buck a week at themorningshakeout.com slash support. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's edited every episode of the podcast and makes it sound great week in and week out. Also, thank you to my right-hand man, Chris Douglas, for handling sponsorship sales and numerous other initiatives, and Jeffrey Stern for the editorial and social media assistance. I don't have a big team here at The Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep this ship afloat. Finally, if you're digging this podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe for an annotated collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.